morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Monday, May 2nd, we are studying Acts chapter 3, verses 1 to 26. Peter and John have no silver or gold to offer to a lame beggar, but they do have the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, and so they give healing in his name to this man, and they proclaim the repentance and forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name to the gathering crowd. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us returning guest, the Reverend Dr. Scott Murray. Pastor Murray serves at Memorial Lutheran Church in Houston, Texas, and he is also the third vice president of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Pastor Murray, welcome back to Sharper Iron. It's always a pleasure to be on with you, Pastor Apple. So as we get started this morning, let's talk a little context. We've come out of two chapters in Acts chapter 2, and this is maybe where, although the first part of our text at least is, a, is a, I think, a common Sunday school story, but this is maybe where the book of Acts starts to get a little bit more fuzzy. We don't always hear these parts within the divine service in the lectionary. So help us out with context. Get us started. What do we need to know leading up to this text today? Sure, that's uh, right on track. So, of course, we've had Pentecost with the um, large number of conversions from the preaching of Peter and the apostles. Um, And then uh, we don't know, you know, what the situation uh, in three is in terms of time. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, it could be very soon after the Acts 2 preaching, Uh, it could be somewhat longer. Uh, we just simply don't know for sure. I, I have this sense that it's fairly soon thereafter. And then really, uh, chapter three makes a transition um, to a sort of a darker um, time in the church's life where she's faced now with the aggressive opposition of the Sanhedrin starting in chapter four. And apparently what gets them riled up, of course, is this good deed done to the man uh, there at at Beautiful Gate in uh, Acts chapter 3. I'm glad you mentioned about the time, because that was going to be one of my questions. And I don't really see anything specific within the text that indicates uh, how long this is after the end of Acts chapter 2. The last verse there in chapter 2 says that the Lord was adding to their number day by day giving the, you know, the time is passing and, and I'm, I'm with you. It, it does seem to be a relatively, or it seems that a relatively short period of time makes sense given the reaction that we're going to see, especially starting in chapter four to what happens in, in chapter three. And I suppose then maybe the, the larger point that we start to see within the life of the church is that the life of the church starts to mirror the life of the Lord, that just as he received persecution for what he did for the preaching of the gospel, so the church is going to receive the same thing. Certainly. Uh, The suffering of Christ is mirrored in uh, the life of his bride. I mean, if this is how they treat the master, how will they treat his servants? Um, So I don't think it's any great surprise that, persecution breaks out almost immediately 
uh, upon the church. And again, that that begins to happen in chapter four. Mm. So it is the the good deed and the good sermon that Peter preaches that will lead up to that in chapter four. So we have chapter three today. Let's take a look at the text. Acts chapter three, beginning at the first verse. Now, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms to those of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple, asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. That takes us through verse 10. Let's pause there. Pastor Murray, set the stage for us. Peter and John, they're at the temple. It's the ninth hour. Just set the scene. Sure. So it's it's about 3 p.m. then in, in our time. Um, and we don't know precisely how they would have entered the temple, whether they had come from uh, the southern entries uh, or there was also a southeastern gate. Oddly enough, I was just in uh, Jerusalem about a month ago and, of course, got to see the blocked up double gate uh, at uh, on the east side of the, the temple precinct. Perhaps they entered there, which would have put them uh, cl- closest to the beautiful gate. Um, you know, presently, you have to go down uh, a couple of flights of stairs to get to the double gate uh, from inside the temple. In those days, um, previous to all the destructions, um, that would have come out onto a level uh, area um, uh, that would have included then um, the the. Uh, the court of the Gentiles, and they approached then the beautiful gate, which faced east um, across the Kidron Valley, or, or, you know, if you could have seen through the wall, it would have would have gone uh, across the Kidron Valley. And 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 as they're coming up to those stairs at the beautiful gate, um, they they happen upon this fellow who is being brought by his friends or his relatives um, to beg there. Um, apparently, it must have been a very lucrative place at which to beg. I don't think there's a big surprise there. Mm-hmm. Um, even though the Old Testament law said that there should not be any beggars in in uh, the people of Israel, mm-hmm. uh, that the, the people of Israel were obligated to care for those who were indigent so that they would not have to beg. Uh, and yet, you know, this this part of the law was ignored, you know, by mm. uh, by the Jewish authorities. And so there were beggars eat right there, even in the temple. Um, in the meantime, of course, they were worried about counting out 10% of the dill weed and, and ignoring this poor, uh, the, the needs of these poor people who uh, were indigent. I, so I think, as they're, 
oh, just briefly, I, I think that's a, a fantastic point that, that what the Old Testament law said to Israel about the reality of beggars and how they were to, to care for them. And there's you know, maybe a bit of ironing the fact that these people are carrying him rather than taking care of him and giving him what he needs here, go beg from these other people instead of us. And I, I think, I mean, that adds, I think a, a bit of uh, flavor to the, to the text and what Peter and John do. They, they end up showing that the church, if I can make this connection, I, I think I can, that the church is the fulfillment of, of Israel because they actually do what the law had, had said Israel was supposed to do. It gets done by the Christian church. I don't know. Maybe that's, I don't know if that's too far of a stretch. I hope not. No, I, I think it, it is appropriate um, because you, you get later in the text this phrase of, of uh, the apocatastasis, the, the times of refreshing, things are made new, regenerated, mm. um, and that's exactly what's happening in the healing of the man uh, who's been lame from birth. Um, of course, the Messianic ministry, um, when when Luke has the disciples of John approach Jesus and say, are you the one or shall we wait for another? He simply points to his acts of healing. And one of the phrases in that list, of course, is um, giving the ability of the lame to walk. And so the Messianic ministry is simply being extended by the apostles in the temple that day, uh, there before the beautiful gate. Um, that's one of the things I love about the book of Acts, is it is it continues to be the ministry of Jesus, because you begin there, um, you know, what Jesus began to do and to teach is a reference yeah. to Luke in the, in the beginning of the book. And as we continue, we're supposed to come to the conclusion that the acts of the apostles are the acts of Jesus. Um, and, and so the other great repeat here is that we find um, Luke introducing Peter and John in what they're about to do as, again, part of the travel log of the visitation of Jesus in his church. You know, they're going up to the temple at the hour of prayer. So you, you get sort of the movement of the apostles um, in the same way in which Jesus is itinerant um, in in the in, in the Gospel of Luke. Mm. Yeah, th- that's a that's a good point. And and they are still in Jerusalem at this point. Which you know, thinking about how Luke was structured, so much of Luke was Jesus' journey to Jerusalem. Then he did what he came to do there. He's commanded his apostles to wait for the promise to be poured out. The Holy Spirit's been given on Pentecost. Now they're there in Jerusalem. And and we know what's going to happen is it's going to spread forth from there. And and so the Lord is, again, fulfilling his promise. And and the connection you made there to what Jesus says to the disciples of John, I think is so fantastic that it shows us Jesus is continuing his work just as Luke began the book of Acts. So he now is continuing his work here through Peter and John. So tell us again, to, back to the, the text here, then you've got this man who's lame. He's got this lucrative spot. He, he makes this connection with Peter and John and Luke really emphasizes this matter of looking at each other that yes. happens. Yes. Yeah. He uses a, a, a verb that means to really intensively look at somebody 
Um, it's, it's used also when the enemies of Jesus keep an eye on him in the uh, synagogue to see what he's going to do uh, with the man with the withered hand. It's the same verb, um, and it's used elsewhere in that way, that, um, that you really peer uh, uh, closely. Uh, and this is what Peter does. Um, and I think that, that part of it is just Peter is recognizing the man um, as someone he has seen repeatedly at the beautiful gate. Of course, P- the, the apostles uh, went to the temple with a great deal of regularity, um, and, and they spent a lot of time there. Um, as we see from the book of Acts. And so it's no big surprise that he takes a really close look at this man um, and he recognizes who he is, even to the point, who knows, maybe he was aware of the fact that he had provided alms to the man on previous occasions at the temple. Hmm. Okay. So so pay attention and they their gaze is fixed. The man, it, it, at least according to Luke, doesn't recognize anything out of the ordinary is going to happen he's expecting to receive some kind of money and then peter speaks and, and these i think are, are pretty famous words there's a there's a, a kid's sunday school song that i recall from this text that it kind of pops into my mind when i hear words of peter and then later the walking and leaping and praising god take us yeah. first to, to peter's words well, of course, he begins by disabusing the fellow of the notion that he's merely going to hand over coin. Um, it is interesting that he uses a more valuable coinage, silver and gold. It isn't, it isn't the copper, uh, you know, half penny or something like that. Uh, apparently, the man, when he gazed at them, thought of them as uh, wealthy donors. <laughs> and, of course... Uh, Peter has to point out, look, I don't really have anything of my own, but then goes on to give uh, a true gift, one where the man is taken out of his uh, brokenness and renewed um, in uh, the remaking of uh, the Genesis world, if you will, by the Messiah uh, among his people. So then he says to him, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. So this is very decisive. Uh, And notice the priority uh, of the person of Christ, um, who I'm sure the the lame man would have known. Um, You know, everyone in that area, we hear that in the the Cornelius uh, event later on in the book, uh, they were all aware of what had happened, uh, even if they didn't know what it meant. Uh, so, so the man was aware of who Jesus was of Nazareth. Um, but, you know, whether he's a believer or not is pretty doubtful. He, he doesn't seem to really know who Peter and John are personally, which if he were a believer, you'd presume that he did. So and he's just a guy in, in terrible need. He is one of the men of Israel. Um, and yet cannot get himself beyond the beautiful gate because of his lameness. Of course, he's not allowed any farther into the temple, um, but is there only begging. So then we get this wonderful, decisive rise up and walk. And this is um, uh, all done in connection with the, the revelation of who Jesus is. This is what in the name of Jesus means, that... that uh, the power to heal was in the hands 
of the apostolic authorities, Peter and John, uh, there in the temple that day. And, uh, of course, we have to remember that the second commandment forbids us to misuse the name of the Lord our God. The point being that God's name and God's person are absolutely inseparable. Um, we don't think that way in our culture. You know, we everybody has a nickname and so on. Uh, names change over time. Uh, many personal names have no meaning. Uh, or the meaning has been entirely forgotten. That was not the case in the ancient world, especially among the ancient Jews. Um, and that's why God, who, who identifies himself with his name, I am that I am, you, you know, they have the burning bush in Exodus 3, that, that this is my name, that it is the name by which I should be no known. Um, and so here, it is that same God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who, whom will be mentioned later, uh, that is the one who is uh, raising this man um, and giving him the ability to walk. Mm. Um, well, just th that, that phrase that Peter uses there for, I think... I don't know if this is the first time, although in the in the quotation he had from Joel on the day of Pentecost, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, and we've got the the being baptized in the name of Jesus Christ at the end of Acts chapter two, this theme right. of, of Jesus' name continues in the preaching of, of Peter particularly, and I'm thinking forward into, well, later in the sermon we're going to read in this chapter, but even in Acts chapter four, you know, uh, four verse 12, I think is one of the more well-known verses from the book of Acts, that there's salvation in no other name other than the name of Jesus. And you said we've kind of lost some of this, you know, what's in a name thing. How do we how do we kind of reclaim that as, as Christians? What do we what do we do with that? Well, I mean, uh, catechesis, <laughs> you know, right. we're te teaching our people uh, the second commandment and its meaning that you do not misuse the name of the Lord your God. And the way I illustrate it um, to children in catechism um, is I say to them, you know, if on the school ground, um, one of your classmates begins to mock your mother's name, what will happen next? Mm. And generally, they look at me and smile and say, well, probably a fight, <laughs> you know, because you don't mock somebody's mother's name. Well, why can't you mock somebody's mother's name? Well, because it's an insult to somebody's mother. Well, this is exactly the situation with God that we, we lose track of it. We so easily let his name drop from our mouths uh, as though it had no significance whatever. And yet it's a saving name. Uh, it's the name that in the name, God is conveying himself to us. And this is why we call on God naming him in prayer. And this is also why we don't rename God to suit our own crazy whims, uh, like some of these baptismal rites that are done in the name of the Creator, the Sanctifier, and the... the um, uh, what's the what's the one? That, I think the, Redeemer, the maybe. Redeemer, right. The Creator, Sanctifier, and Redeemer. So um, we end up in these situations where we're messing around with God's name, when in fact the very name itself is saving. But we just have to emphasize that with God's people and preach on it. Mm. Yeah, well, and I think, you know, this this matter of the name to, to also, also emphasize the, the positive aspect, which I think is what, what you're saying. You know, look at all of the good things that are there for you 
in Jesus name. And that's, I don't know, the, the picture of and this is maybe not the best, but like Jesus name and everything that belongs to his name. Sometimes we hear the, the phrase in the name of Jesus. And we think that means like only saying Jesus name, like saying Jesus, or that's a, a formula we use to close our prayers. And that's, it's not bad, but to, to think of Jesus name as containing all these blessings. And, and so, right. I mean, that's all of those good things that are there for me in Jesus name. That's the, the positive side. So I don't want to misuse it because of, because of all of the, the threats that are there, certainly, but man, right. to, to have the name of Jesus as a gift and all that God wants to convey through it, that's that I, that part of the commandment, I think, is sometimes we neglect that. And I, I try to emphasize that, too, because there's just so much good for us in that we have Jesus name and all the blessings God gives through it. Correct. Well, I mean, the, the being forbidden to misuse also implies that we ought to use. Yeah. God wants his name to be used. He wants us to call upon him in every trouble. And and so he puts his name on our lips, um, a, as you say as a way of giving all of his benefits and blessings to us, which we receive by faith. Mm. And so this man receives that gift, which is there for him in the name of Jesus, the gift of, of walking in this case. But it sounds like, yeah, as you said, he, he's likely not a believer at, at the point Peter and John make eye contact with him. They don't seem to know him. And given what we heard about the church taking care of, of their own at the end of Acts chapter 2, they're not yet doing that here for this man. This comes to him as a complete gift. But now it seems like he gets more than just the healing of his legs from Jesus' name. It, it looks like faith begins, I think, or I, I hope I'm not reading too much into it. Right. Well, I mean, for starters, they don't have to give him any physical therapy. Right. <laughs> Which I always find quite delightful, right? Because immediately his feet and ankles are made strong and, uh, you know, he could he could uh, dance around is really what he's doing. Uh, the verbs are, are, you know, he keeps leaping and he keeps walking and and, uh, you know, he just he can't sit still because this has never happened in his life before to be able to move like this. And not only is he able to move like this now, but he's able to move uh, with complete agility instantly like you know all pastors have had the experience of having a dear member that's been in the hospital three four weeks maybe bedridden over that time and they get well enough to leave the hospital but they don't get well enough to go home because they have to have physical therapy and off they go to a therapeutic hospital to gain their strength back this guy goes from being lame and unable to walk unable to get himself to the beautiful gate and instantly he's uh, he's walking and dancing uh, through the through the courtyard. Mm. Well, and, and he's doing so. This is where that song comes back in, at least in my mind. He's walking and leaping and praising God. There's a it sounds like there's a faith that's beginning to develop in this man. Well, I mean, I, I would presume him to be um, an Israelite believer earlier when I said I don't think he's a believer. Um, I was thinking more in terms of right. the fact 
that he would not have trusted Christ as his savior. He doesn't appear to be part of the Christian community and so on. Uh, he might know who Jesus is, and I'd be surprised if he didn't, given all the things that had happened in the temple uh, during his work day um, when, when Jesus was visiting in the temple before, uh, during Holy Week, of course. Mm. So, um, but now suddenly he's experienced the power of the name. And so this praising of God, um, it seems to me to be uh, much more complete or much more poignant um, than it might have been otherwise. Uh, it's, uh, it's in complete connection with the divine revelation of God in his son, Jesus Christ, whose name has been given and is used in this case to bring healing into his life. So, I mean, in, in that sense, similar to what happens with the the one leper in Luke 17, when he comes and, and falls at Jesus' feet and is, I believe the text says, praising or thanking God there, that there's this, and I know, I'm, I'm make, sure, I'm make sure I understand what you're saying here, that this man is starting to make the connection between the name Jesus and the God that he's worshiped in this temple before. I, that's what I think. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, so we see how, I mean, this is again, the word of the Lord is at work here in this man who has received now this healing. And then it, so it's the hour of prayer. Should we understand that when the enters the temple, it's like they all go into the temple for the hour of prayer now. And that's where what verses nine and 10 are taking place. Yeah, so it's at, at three o'clock, the, the uh, sacrificial victim, the, the lamb, the afternoon lamb, the lamb of God, uh, would be offered there at that time. Um, and the people would approach, we know from the case of Zechariah in Luke, that the, that the men waited in the court of the men until the priest came out in the uh, afternoon from the, from the temple building itself and gave them a blessing so that they could return home. So this would be a time when the temple was relatively busy on a worship day uh, at the time of what we would call evening prayer. Um, they would have had morning prayer as well. There would have been a morning sacrifice and an evening sacrifice. Uh, but but there's a crowd, and what happens then is that somewhere between the beautiful gate and Solomon's portico, there's a fairly large um, paved precinct. It would have been paved by stone, and uh, there are large crowds there. And all of a sudden, as they head back towards Solomon's portico on the very east edge of the temple, uh, which would have been a double um um, colonnade, uh, the people start to swarm in because they recognize this guy kind of uh, uh, dancing about, and they realize who he is. They've seen him many times as they pass through the beautiful gate into the court of the women. And so, so they start to crowd around. This is attractive. Uh, they wonder what has happened. Um, you know, depending on their age, they may have seen him for the last 25 years um, being uh, 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 taken to the, the beautiful gate and there begging for alms. And so Peter has a crowd and he's going to make use of that opportunity to proclaim the good news about Jesus to that crowd. And we're going to pick that up on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO. We are talking with Pastor Scott Murray about Acts chapter three. We'll be right back. Please stick around. 
Did you know that Lutherans are helping new American immigrants get settled? How about struggling church workers in need of support and refreshment? And we assist at-risk children and provide disaster response to hurricane victims. Through LCMS recognized service organizations, we are doing all this and more. I'm Rahema Kavuga of Lutheran Church Extension Fund, and I don't want you to miss out on hearing what your brothers and sisters in Christ are up to. Visit interesttime.org to see how your support gives life to these works of mercy and love. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Monday, May 2nd. We're studying Acts chapter 3, verses 1 to 26 with Pastor Scott Murray. He serves at Memorial Lutheran Church in Houston, Texas, and is also the third vice president of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Pastor Murray, prior to the break, we were looking at the miracle that is done in the name of Jesus. The man receives healing. He's able to walk. A crowd is gathering because they recognize this man. Peter now will take the opportunity to proclaim a sermon. We pick up the text in Acts 3, verse 11. While he, that is the man who had been healed, while he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know, And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that as Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn again, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets have spoken, who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him, also proclaim these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, And in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first, to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. That's the rest of our text for today. That's Acts chapter 3, verses 11 to 26. Pastor Murray, Peter's sermon begins. He asks the people, why are you wondering at what's happened as if we did this? Take us into Peter's introduction. Sure. Uh, of course, you can see that the man is clinging to Peter and John. So he he is probably trumpeting the fact that these two fellows... Mm-hmm had, in fact, brought healing to him. Um, the crowd is absolutely dumbfounded by this. They are perfectly aware of what has happened to this man and who he is. And 
uh, now uh, they're staring at him using the same verb, actually, that mm. Peter used when he looked attentively uh, at the lame man. And and now, you know, they figure, well, we got these healers, uh, you know, available to us. Um, you know, these folks are, are worth uh, cultivating. And of course, uh, Peter wants to nip that absolutely in the bud. Uh, he's not interested in being considered a wonder worker in the absolute sense, but rather that this is God's work. Yes, perhaps the apostolic authorities are the means by which, the means of grace, if you will, the means by which Jesus uh, works this wonderful miracle in in the uh, case of the man. Um, and but he wants to say that this is really God's business. And of course, he does a beautiful job in making a point of contact with this crowd of people uh, in the temple uh, by addressing them and then saying the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers. You know, everyone's paying attention. They're all saying, hey, this guy's on our team. And. Only then does he get to the point of saying, glorified his servant Jesus, mm. whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate. So um, it, the, the, the sermon begins with something that's attractive to the hearers, uh, something that identifies uh, Peter with the hearers and with their heroic uh, ancient past, if you will, um, but then, uh, but then he introduces Jesus, this child of this God of our fathers, this servant of the God of our fathers, um, and then he accuses uh, the crowd of delivering him over and denying him in the presence of Pilate, and this is quite this is quite shocking. Uh, I'm sure, to be surrounded by this great crowd of people uh, in a confined space, even though it was a large space, and and then start to preach against uh, their act of murder is really what it boils mm -hmm. down to mm -hmm. in this. Yeah, I mean, and this is not, it's not foreign to Peter. We, we heard him do this in Acts chapter two as well. He's pretty direct with the people to whom he preaches that you did this, you, you killed Jesus. And it is, it's very bold given the, the, especially where he is too. I mean, he's in the temple and, and that's where, you know, when Jesus spoke against the temple, that's where some of the, the language of his that was used against him when he was on trial before the Sanhedrin, they didn't like that. So it's, it's bold of Peter, but, but he's, preaching the good news this is what jesus has sent him to do to be a witness and so he is very direct you right. killed this jesus and and as he does and there's a number of things we can pick up here pastor murray but one of them i think is really significant is the the names that he gives to jesus yeah you know, he, he calls him the holy and righteous one and then he calls him the author of life and then he right. even says that he they killed the author of life which you know outside of whatever else Peter is doing within the sermon, just that statement alone is a very amazing thing to ponder. Tell, tell us about some of these ways Peter refers to Jesus. Well, I, I think the, the most fantastic contrast you have here is on the one hand, they asked for a murderer. Hmm. And it is interesting. Luke never names Barabbas, right? He's only a murderer and an insurrectionist. And here it's just a murderer. And again, this would have been known, so it wasn't any great secret. 
Um, and then on the other hand, uh, so you had the murderer granted life, and then the author of life killed. And the Greek actually, um, um, Peter uses two verbs that that sound poetic. Ernesasta etesasta. You handed over or you betrayed on the one hand, and then you asked for a murderer man. And then for what to be given over to you, and the word is, the verb there is also related to the, the Greek word for grace. So you mm-hmm. provided grace to the murderer, the author of life you, you had handed over unto death, the result being that the murderer was graced, and the author of life pays the price by giving up mm-hmm. his life. So there's all kinds of huge uh, ironies here in the titles that that uh, Peter gives to Jesus in his sermon, and the fantastic contrast that he raises with Barabbas uh, in this particular text. Hmm. Yeah, the, the ironies that are there, but yet the good news that's within those ironies that that this was done for you. He's he's going to get there as the sermon pr- progresses, and just uh, and from a, a dogmatic doctrinal perspective that peter says you killed the author of life uh, right. the author of life being you know a title for god that we yeah. say on the cross god died that's that's really huge sure and and you have uh, of course here we are uh, after after holy week many of our congregations would have sung o darkest woe yeah. um the second stanza is o sorrow dread our God is dead upon the cross extended there his love enlivened us as his life was ended. So the Bible says the most shocking flabbergasting things about this Jesus who is God of God, light of light, very God of very God, that he is dead on the cross. God died. And there's this beautiful passage um, in Luther uh, where he refers to this, um, uh, I just I, I have to read this because it's so powerful. He says, Christians should know that if God is not in the scale to give it weight, we on our side sink to the ground. I mean it this way. If it cannot be said that God died for us, but only a man, we are lost. But if God's death and a dead God lie in the balance, his side goes down and our ours goes up light and empty scale like a light and empty scale so um luther is uh, glomming on to this idea that the author of life himself uh is dead on the cross of calvary mm. yeah and there there are other places within the book of acts and elsewhere in the new testament where you get these striking phrases where you crucified the lord of glory is another accusation that will be leveled and i mean that to recognize the great importance of what has happened on the cross that there god died for us this is is huge and that quote from luther is fantastic to point out the meaning now as peter did in acts chapter 2 again he does the same here you killed him but god raised him from the dead it's i mean it's striking to see how this preaching just continues in the book of acts about the resurrection of jesus being so important 
Peter says to this, we are witnesses. And then he, he kind of summarizes, I think in verse 16, what they've witnessed that it's in this name that this man has is healing. Take us up through verse 16 before Peter makes a bit of a turn in verse 17. Sure. So you get you at the end of 15, you get a sort of, Oh, by the way, phrase, um, from Peter, um, to this we are witnesses. So you have the judicial witness of the apostolic authorities, and this is t- to contrast himself from Jesus. Jesus is the doer of the miracle. Jesus is the actor. I'm here merely as a living witness to the living Lord. And then he goes on in 16 uh, and repeats the significance, you know, by faith in his name. And he repeats it, right? And his name, by faith in his name, uh, he has made this man strong whom you see and know. So he goes back to Christ. He goes back to the means by which this occurs. It is Christ himself who does it. Um, And faith is given then um, to this man. Uh, That is through Jesus, uh, that this man has been given perfect health uh, in the presence of you all. So he goes, it's Jesus, Jesus, only Jesus. In that sense, Peter is a very good preacher. Uh, He stays on track, making sure that he's proclaiming Christ uh, Jesus uh, at every step to this crowd. Hmm. Yeah, over and over again, that's what Peter is focused on. This is what has happened to Jesus, and he's going to do that in every sermon he preaches here in the book of Acts. So in verse 17, then, he makes a turn, and he he starts applying it, I think, is what happens in verse 17. And my mind always goes back to the end of Luke, where Jesus opens their minds and says, all all the scriptures are about my death and resurrection and they are to be proclaimed for repentance and forgiveness of sins. And it's like, that's where Peter's sermons kind of follow that outline or always get those points in there. And he starts to do that here. Now he, he says, you didn't know what you were doing, but he, and he contrasts that by what God had foretold. How does, how does Peter make this transition in his sermon? So he, he, he makes sure that his hearers, though they have been totally destroyed by the law, um, have a hope of repentance. And so he, do, he introduces that hope by saying, you acted in ignorance. And he really says something remarkable here that we would have difficulty saying today, mm. as did also your rulers. Mm. Well, you know, we're talking about Caiaphas and Annas and their crowd, and, and yet Peter is generously willing to say that that these leaders are themselves had themselves acted in ignorance. So there's a possibility of repentance, you know, for everyone. Um, and then it's no wonder, as Acts re- reports to us, that many priests were converted in the earlier days of the life of the church. If this kind of generosity and preaching was delivered, there's always a possibility of repentance. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he goes back, of course, to the heroes of these people, the prophets, um, and he tells them that God was speaking about this Christ and what would happen to him. Mm-hmm. So what what did the what came out of the mouth of the prophets that this Christ was suffer would suffer? Pardon me. Uh, and, and so it's, I find it interesting the number of times that we, we get references to the crucifixion or to the suffering of Christ, 
uh, where we always are very quick in our preaching to say the death and resurrection or the mm-hmm. suffering and resurrection of Christ. But Peter's not afraid just simply to talk about his suffering. Why? Because that is the cause of salvation for the world, his pouring out of his blood on the cross of Calvary. So this Christ would suffer, this the prophets talk about, and this he fulfilled uh, by having his son suffer and die on the cross. And he calls them back then to repent right? Mm. Turn back, repent. And of course, that's exactly what repent means, is to turn away from your sin, turn out, uh, turn back toward God. Um, And what's the result? That your sins may be blotted out, that they may be wiped away, like tears are wiped off our face with with a a handkerchief or a a tissue. Uh, So they're just simply gone, wiped away. Mm. Um, And then you get this time of refreshing. So you have uh, a a, a revival. It's um, it's like when you're you're winded and you're you're breathing hard, and then you get your breath back and you breathe normally again. This you're revived. You have a recovery of your breath, and all of this is coming where from the presence of the Lord. Um, he may be uh, crucified. Uh, he may indeed be raised. He may indeed have ascended. Um, but who is the one who is bringing this refreshment? It is the Lord himself. So he's not gone. Um, he's present with his people through the apostolic preaching. And here in this, the means of the preaching in the temple, he's bringing refreshment to God's people. Mm. Well, and I think then Peter takes it all the way to the very end when, when Jesus comes back. That's how it sounds like what verse 20 is going to that he may send the Christ a point. Is that going all the way to the end of the story, to the, the second coming? Correct. Yes, absolutely. That that we do get then the bodily appearance of the Lord of the church. Um, he's certainly with the church now, though unseen, um, in the same way, for example, as the Emmaus disciples mm-hmm. have Jesus visibly with them. They don't recognize him, and they only recognize him when he breaks the bread, and then he's not visible to them, and yet he's still present with them. How? In the breaking of the bread. So this is, this is the way it works. Until that return, where he returns bodily to us, just as we saw him go up into heaven at his ascension. Uh, so, so we go from um, this death of Christ here in this preaching to giving us revival and then the certain promise of his return uh, of this Christ, uh, a return that is appointed for you. Mm. Now, just briefly, Dr. Murray, if you would, verse 21, about heaven must receive Jesus is the way the ESV translates that. Could you just briefly talk about what that means? Because I've, I've heard some try to use that verse as a, a proof that, well, look, Jesus must be in heaven so he can't be in the Lord's Supper. Could you just briefly, I, mean, I know we don't believe that and that's not what that verse means. Could you briefly give an explanation of that verse? Yeah, sure. I mean, part of the problem here is that most translations, although the ESV doesn't get it wrong, um, but for example, the NIV gets it wrong by saying uh, that he must remain in heaven Mm -hmm. as though heaven possessed Jesus in such a way that he couldn't get away. I mean, like, really? What kind of a God is stuck (laughs) in heaven that he can't get away? 
Um, and, and you also have these wonderful examples of Moses and Elijah standing with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. Are Moses and Elijah not in heaven? Well, of course they are. So just because heaven is required to receive him um, in his visible presence um, doesn't mean that he isn't also present invisibly uh, with his holy people here and now. Um, so that, that, that passage has been much misused over the years. Yes. Yeah. So I appreciate you giving the clarity and helping us to explain it and not letting that passage overrule any clear passages of scripture, but rather very much interpreting that in light of what our Lord teaches about what the Lord's Supper is. So with that, Peter's sermon continues. And and like he did in Acts chapter two, he's going to quote from the Old Testament. How does he make use of this passage from Moses? I think it comes from Deuteronomy 18. Right. So it's Deuteronomy 18, 15, and so on. And he's reminding, so he's quoting Moses, and then he'll go on and say in 24, and all the prophets, and this is the way the Jews tended to divide things up, Pentateuch and prophets, especially the Pharisees. Mm -hmm. Um, And so Moses is the heavy hitter, right? Um, He is the guy who is most respected, Um, because he gives Torah, he gives law to God's people. And Moses is the one then that promises a prophet like himself from among your brothers. So in other words, it emphasizes that, that this Jesus is promised by Moses and will be for that reason superior to Moses um, because because he's coming now uh, among God's people to die for them. Um, and therefore, you shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. So, so what Peter's doing is he's setting up the number one heavy hitter for the Jewish hearer um, in terms of divine authority um, and referring uh, this wonderful promise of Moses uh, specifically to Jesus. This must have made their ears really pick up uh, when uh, when he says this um, and requiring obedience uh, to this one. And every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. So that's another call to repentance for their lack of listening to um, the child Jesus or the servant Jesus, the servant of God, uh, whom God had sent. Mm. Yeah, and so then he says, this is what all the prophets have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him. Verse 25, you, you mentioned earlier the the way that, that Peter, you know, he speaks kindly, you know, you acted in ignorance, you, so did your rulers. Now when he calls them the sons of the prophets and the sons of this covenant with Abraham, also strikes me in that same spirit, rather than calling them, you know, you're the ones that killed the prophets. He says, no, no, you you belong to to these prophets. You belong to this covenant that God made with Abraham. It, it strikes me as a, a generous way of speaking, a way of, of reaching out to them and saying, calling them to that repentance and also faith in Jesus. Sure. Um, You know, it's a wonderful uh, encouragement on their part. Um, You really belong to God's people and to his unique spokesman, the prophets of the Old Testament, uh, beginning uh, with Samuel and continuing with those after him. Um, This is the way the Talmud spoke. Um, uh, They thought of Samuel as 
the Magister Profitarum, in other words, the Master of the Prophets, um, and, and then all who followed thereafter uh, in that same train. So um, he wants them to understand that they, they still have status as God's people, um, but, but that um, they are expected to trust and believe the, uh, the promises that, that um, the prophets delivered from God um, and the covenant that, of course, God had made with their fathers. And then, of course, he quotes uh, uh, Moses again in, um, in Genesis 22, 18, uh, where he has the, a promise to Abraham after the, um, what would you say, failed sacrifice of Isaac. <laughs> Uh, thankfully, a failed sacrifice. And in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And again, that is to refer uh, them uh, to this Jesus who becomes that perfect um, ram caught in the thicket um, so that uh, God's people can have this time of refreshing. Mm-hmm. Dr. Murray, we've got about three minutes here on the morning. Help us to, to wrap this text up, the miracle that we've seen, the sermon of Peter, and, and how it gives good news to us as Christians today. Oh, yes. Um, so we have the remaking of the universe in, in a very small corner of it with the healing of the lame man. Um, God intends that everything should be made complete, that there is a return to, to Eden's perfection. And we get a sign of that uh, when Peter and John bring healing into this particular lame man's life. Um, I find it comforting uh, that this lame man may indeed not himself be a believer in Jesus, although I would say as the sermon progresses, there's no doubt that that's um, where he ends up. Then, of course, uh, you have uh, the, the very Lutheran content, if you will, of Peter's servant, where he's saying, look, it's not me. I didn't do this. This isn't about us. This is about Jesus. It is about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and what he did to save the world in this child of God, this Jesus, this Son of God. Um, you, you also have ferocious law preaching. Uh, that must have been devastating if they took it seriously, which I think they did, um, that, that he accused them of making a trade between the very author of life and the one who would glibly take life, the uh, Barabbas, um, and, and, but that this was God's plan, right, to both bring death to his son for the sake of murderers, on the one hand, and to raise him from the dead to grant life. Um, And then, of course, these judicial witnesses, Peter and John, are there to testify to the reality of this. Um, And again, you get the generosity of the preaching of uh, the apostles, both in saying that the crowd were ignorant of what they were doing, and indeed, even the very rulers uh, of Israel were ignorant, um, and yet, He's still calling you back to repentance. And what will happen? 
well, your sins will be blotted away. Well, why? Because this Jesus brings a time of refreshing, uh, brings uh, the power of his death. He who is God of God dies for you. He's in the in the scales and and you fly up as light as air uh, because uh, the weight is all uh, on the other side with God's son dying for us. And then, of course, connecting um, all the divine promises, of the Old Testament, uh, to the person of Messiah, to Christ, who comes and dies for his people. So I, I, I think it's a wonderful model for Christian preaching, and I would pray someday that I might preach one sermon as good as this one. That's my prayer as well, Pastor Murray. Reverend Dr. Scott Murray is pastor at Memorial Lutheran Church in Houston, Texas, and also the third vice president of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, helping us today with Acts chapter 3, verses 1 to 26. Dr. Murray, thanks for being our guest today. It's always a pleasure, Pastor Apple. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have any questions about Acts chapter 3, please send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org or use the open mic feature on the app to send a message to us. We always love to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.